Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. I am Judge Michael Warren, and today we continue our review of Article 1 of the Constitution. We have completed our examination of Sections 1, 2, and 3 of the article. We move on to explore Section 4, which addresses congressional elections and when Congress convenes. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. And spectacular Sheila Guerin and enchanting Aaron Messino, thank you for all your support. Please subscribe and encourage your fellow patriots and anyone interested in the Constitution, American history, and civics to do the same. Mike Gerard, we'll get us started. As we previously discussed, the first article of the Constitution establishes the Congress. Sections 1, 2, and 3 of that article establish the two houses of Congress, how the members of each chamber are chosen, and the qualifications of, and the terms of office for, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Section 4 specifies how members are elected and provides as follows. The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. This paragraph provides that each respective state will establish the specific details of elections for their members of the House of Representatives and Senators. The where, when, and how of elections is left to each state. However, there is an important caveat. Congress also has the authority to override the laws of the states that specify the time, place, and manner of elections for the House of Representatives as well as the time and manner of elections of senators. Because senators were to be chosen by the state legislatures, the Congress could not change the place of senatorial elections. As noted in prior episodes, During its first few months, the Constitutional Convention had been consumed with how members of the House of Representatives and Senate were to be allocated among the states and who would elect them. The mechanical, nitty-gritty details of actually electing the members was overlooked while these bigger issues were being debated. However, the Congress appointed a committee of detail to create a draft constitution and the mechanical, nitty-gritty details needed to be fleshed out. The report of the Committee of Detail was unveiled on August 6, 1787, and Article 6, Section 1 of the draft provided as follows. The times and places and manner of holding the elections of the members of each House shall be prescribed by the legislature of each state, but their provisions concerning them may, at any time, be altered by the legislature of the United States. The language of the August 6th draft was revised slightly to prohibit Congress from changing the place of Senate elections. Other than that, and a few stylistic changes, the provision was not revised and became part of the final constitutional text. Remarkably, there is no recorded debate on this provision in the Constitutional Convention. Its wisdom was apparently self-evident at the Convention, or was of so little concern that it was ignored. The provision would not be so lucky during the ratification process. After the Congress sent the Constitution to the states for ratification, the provision was robustly debated. For example, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, future President James Monroe, who at that time was a veteran of the Revolutionary War and a member of Congress, rose on what would become Flag Day, that is June 14th of 1788, and remarked that, I wish that the Honorable Gentleman, James Madison, who had been in the Federal Convention, would give information respecting the clause concerning elections. I wish to know why Congress had an ultimate control over the time, place, and manner of elections of representatives, and the time and manner of that of senators, and also why there was an exception as to the place of electing senators. Never one to turn down the opportunity to smash a softball out of the park when discussing the Constitution, Madison responded in connection with the Senate. Mr. Chairman, the reason for the exception was that if Congress could fix the place of choosing the senators, it might compel the state legislatures to elect them in a different place from that of their usual sessions, which would produce some inconvenience and was not necessary for the object of regulating the elections, but it was necessary to give the general government a control over the time and manner of choosing the senators to prevent its own dissolution. 
In other words, because senators were chosen by the state legislatures, Congress could not change the place of their elections. They would be elected in the respective state capitals at the chambers of the legislature. However, there was a concern that if the legislatures didn't act, that the Senate wouldn't have any senators. So it was vital that Congress could mandate the time and manner of senatorial elections if necessary. Madison then turned to the need for Congress to regulate the time, place, and manner of electing members to the House of Representatives. It was thought that the regulation of time, place, and manner of electing the representatives should be uniform throughout the continent. Some states might regulate the elections on the principles of equality, and others might regulate them otherwise. This diversity would be obviously unjust. Elections are regulated now unequally in some states, particularly South Carolina with respect to Charleston, which is represented by 30 members. Should the people of any state by any means be deprived of the right of suffrage, it was judged proper that it should be remedied by the general government. It was found impossible to fix the time, place, and manner of the election of representatives in the Constitution. It was found necessary to leave the regulation of these in the first place to the state governments as being best acquainted with the situation of the people subject to the control of the general government in order to enable it to produce uniformity and prevent its own dissolution, and considering the state governments and general governments as distinct bodies acting in different and independent capacities for the people, it was though the particular regulations should be submitted to the former and the general regulations to the latter, were they exclusively under the control of the state governments, the general government might easily be dissolved. But if they be regulated properly by the state legislatures, the congressional control will very likely never be exercised. The power appears to me satisfactory and as unlikely to be abused as any part of the Constitution. In short, Madison explained that because the states were obviously much more knowledgeable about the most practical and fair way to organize elections, the states should have the power to organize congressional elections. Still, that power could be abused. For example, by forcing all members of the House of Representatives to be elected in one city, which would obviously favor that city's voters. Or a state could require all votes to take place in rural areas, which would dilute the turnout of city dwellers. The duty to hold elections could also be ignored. In other words, a state could just not set a time for elections. States could even band together to deprive Congress of their representatives or senators, bringing the federal government to a halt. In either case, it would be important for Congress to have the backup authority to intervene to ensure the members of the Congress were elected in a fair and timely fashion. Madison reflected if the states behaved well, Congress would never act. Madison's rationale was widely accepted by the Federalists, those who supported the ratification of the Constitution. Former member of the Continental Congress and state judge and future United States Senator, Federalist writer Oliver Ellsworth rebuffed an anti-Federalist attack on this provision. Your own legislative assemblies are to regulate the formalities of this choice of electing representatives and senators, and unless they betray you, you cannot be betrayed. But perhaps it may be said Congress has a power to control this formality as to the time and places of electing, and we allow they have. But this objection, which at first looks frightful, was designed as a guard to the privileges of the electors. Even state assemblies may have their fits of madness and passion. This, though not probable, is still possible. 
Echoing Madison, Ellsworth was arguing that the provision was necessary to ensure that the states did not abuse their power. He then pointed out that the Rhode Island legislature was already running amok and that unjust passions could certainly take hold of state legislatures in the future. Rhode Island, you see, had not sent a delegation to the Constitutional Convention, which meant not a single Rhode Island voice was present at the convention, completely disenfranchising all the citizens of Rhode Island. The same dereliction of duty was quite possible after the Constitution was ratified. Connecticut, for example, could simply not elect a senator, thereby disenfranchising the entire state. This could not stand. We have a recent instance in the state of Rhode Island where a desperate junto are governing contrary to the sense of a great majority of the people. It may be the case in any other state, and should it ever happen, that the ignorance or rashness of the state assemblies in a fit of jealousy should deny you this sacred right. The deliberate justice of the continent is enabled to interpose and restore you to a federal voice. This right is therefore more invaluably guarded than it can be by the government of your state, for it is guaranteed by the whole empire. Despite the seemingly self-evident need for this provision, it became a major bone of contention with the Anti-Federalists. They saw it as an underhanded way of allowing the Congress to avoid elections and to perpetuate their rule indefinitely. On July 25, 1788, at the North Carolina Ratifying Convention, Delegate David Caldwell addressed the clause. Caldwell was a pastor, farmer, and teacher of the classics. He was a member of the North Carolina Provincial Congress of 1776 and helped draft North Carolina's new constitution. He explained how the provision was a danger to liberty and freedom. Mr. Chairman, those things which can be Maybe. We know that in the British government, the members of Parliament were eligible only for three years. They determined they might be chosen for seven years. If Congress can alter the time, manner, and place, I think it will enable it to do what the British Parliament once did. They have declared that the elections of senators are for six years and of representatives for two years. But they have said there was an exception to this general declaration. In other words, that Congress can alter them. If the convention only meant that they should alter them in such a manner as to prevent a discontinuation of the government, why have they not said so? It must appear to every gentleman in this convention that they can alter the elections to what time they please. And if the British Parliament did once give themselves the power of sitting four years longer than they have the right to do so, Congress, having a standing army and the command of the militia, may, with the same propriety, make an act to continue the members for years or even for their natural lives. This construction appears perfectly rational to me. I therefore think that this convention will never swallow such a government without securing us against danger. Looking back at English history, which all the delegates were intimately familiar with, Caldwell reminded the convention that the Parliament had violated the tradition of frequent elections by extending their terms of office. In 1715, the Parliament passed the Septennial Act, which increased the term of office of members of the House of Commons from three to seven years. The Americans agreed that was a terrible abuse of the English Constitution, yet here the proposed Constitution of the United States expressly allowed the same abuse. Caldwell was hardly alone in his critique. On the same day, Delegate Samuel Spencer also rose to attack the provision. Spencer was a county representative in the North Carolina Revolutionary Government, a member of the committee that drafted the new state constitution and Declaration of Rights, and served as a district and a superior court judge. In a rare use of judicial review, which preceded Marbury v. Madison by decades, he struck down a state law in 1787. 
He served two North Carolina ratifying conventions, and yes, they had two because the Constitution was initially rejected in the first one. He became a trustee of the University of North Carolina in 1789. And sadly, in 1793, he died of an infection in his hand from, of all things, a turkey attack. But before that fatal encounter, the learned jurist explained, It appears to me that the state governments are not sufficiently secured, and that they may be swallowed up by the great mass of powers given to Congress. If that be the case, such power should not be given. For from all notions which have concerning our happiness and well-being, state governments are the basis of our happiness, security, and prosperity. A large extent of the country ought to be divided into such a number of states as their people may conveniently carry on their own government. This will render the government perfectly agreeable to the genius and wishes of the people. I know of no way that is likely to produce the happiness of the people but to preserve, as far as possible, the existence of the several states, so that they shall not be swallowed up. Now, it has been said that the existence of the state governments is essential to that of the general government because they choose the senators. By this clause, it is evident it is in the power of Congress to make any alterations except as to the place of choosing senators. They may alter the time from six to twenty years, or to any other time, for they have an unlimited control over the time of elections. They also have an absolute control over the election of the representatives. It deprives the people of the very mode of choosing them. It seems nearly to throw the whole power of election into the hands of Congress. It strikes at the mode, time, and place of choosing representatives. It puts all but the place of electing senators into the hands of Congress. This supersedes the necessity of continuing the state legislatures. This is such an article as I can give no sanction to, because it strikes at the foundation of the government on which depends the happiness of the states and the general government. Spencer was expressing a widespread sentiment. The states were the best security for self-government and the protection of the unalienable rights of the people. By granting authority of Congress over congressional elections, the states could be subverted. This clause provided the seed of tyranny. It could not be countenanced. Yet another delegate at the North Carolina Convention attacked the clause. During the American Revolution, Timothy Bloodworth made muskets and bayonets for the Continental Army and later served as a member of the State House of Commons as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention and a state senator. After the ratification of the Constitution, he served in the very first session of Congress in the House of Representatives and later in the U.S. Senate. After his time in Congress, he served as a collector of customs, and he thought the provision struck at the heart of representative government. The House of Representatives is the only democratical branch. This clause may destroy representation entirely. What does it say? The times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. Now, sir, does not this clause give an unlimited and unbounded power to Congress over the times, places, and manner of choosing representatives? They may make the time of election so long, the place so inconvenient, and the manner so oppressive that it will entirely destroy representation. I hope gentlemen will exercise their own understanding on this occasion and not let their judgment be led away by these shining characters for whom, however, I have the highest respect. This Constitution, if adopted in its present mode, must end in the subversion of our liberties. Suppose it take place in North Carolina. Can farmers elect then? No, sir. The elections may be in such a manner that men may be appointed who are not representatives of the people. This may exist and it ought to be guarded against. As to the place, suppose Congress should order the elections to be held in the most inconvenient place, 
in the most inconvenient district. Could every person entitled to vote attend at such a place? Suppose they should be ordered to be laid off in so many districts and order the election to be held within each district. Yet may not their power over the manner of election enable them to exclude from voting every description of men they please? The democratic branch is so much endangered that no arguments can be made use of to satisfy my mind to it. Bloodworth illustrated the fears poignantly. Congress could subvert our liberties through this clause by fixing elections to unjust, unfair, and corrupt places, times, and manners. It would destroy representative government. In fact, a recurrent theme was that by giving Congress the authority to regulate when and where congressional elections could be held, that there was no guarantee that fair elections would ever be held. At the Pennsylvania Convention on November 30, 1787, Robert Whitehall echoed this theme. Under the sanction of this clause, the senators may hold their seats as long as they live, and there is no authority to dispossess them. The duration of the House of Representatives may likewise be protracted to any period, since the time and place of election will always be adapted to the objects of the Congress or its leading demagogues. And as that body will ultimately declare what shall constitute the qualifications of its members, all the boasted advantages of representation must terminate in idle form and expensive parade. If the voice of complaint should not then be silenced by the dread of punishment, easy it is nevertheless to anticipate the fate of petitions or remonstrances presented by the trembling hand of the oppressed to the irritated and ambitious oppressor. Solicitation will be answered by those statutes which are to be the supreme law of the land, and reproach will be overcome by the frown of insolent authority. This, Mr. President, is but a slight view of the calamities that will be produced by the exercise of those powers. Similar sentiments were expressed in many of the ratifying conventions. Patrick Henry used his considerable voice to level this attack in the Virginia Ratifying Convention on June 5, 1788. What can be more defective than the clause concerning the elections? The control given to Congress over the time, place, and manner of holding elections will totally destroy the end of suffrage. The elections may be held at one place, and the most inconvenient in the state, or they may be at remote distances from those who have a right of suffrage. Hence, nine out of ten must either not vote at all, or vote for strangers." for the most influential characters will be applied to, to know who are the most proper to be chosen. I repeat that the control of Congress over the manner of electing well warrants this idea. The natural consequence will be that this democratic branch will possess none of the public confidence. The people will be prejudiced against the representatives chosen in such an injudicious manner." The proceedings in the northern enclave will be hidden from the yeomanry of this country, and we are told that the yeas and nays shall be taken and entered on the journals. This, sir, will avail nothing. It may be locked up in their chests and concealed forever from the people, for they are not to publish what parts they think require secrecy. They may think and will think the whole requires it. Henry explained that because Congress could unfairly fix the time and place of elections, the population would never have the confidence in the elections. Over and over again, the Anti-Federalists saw the germ of corrupt and tyrannical government laid in this provision. Not only were these concerns expressed at the ratifying conventions, the issue appeared over and over again in the pamphlets and commentaries attacking the Constitution. One particularly articulate Anti-Federalist, who used the pen name Federal Farmer, explained how this power could be creatively abused to unfairly choose the congressmen, locate the polls, or even hide the votes. The branches of the legislature are essential parts of the fundamental compact and ought to be so fixed by the people that the legislature cannot alter itself by modifying the elections of its own members. This by part of Article 1, Section 4 of the General Legislature, it may do, 
It may evidently so regulate elections as to secure the choice of any particular description of men. It may make the whole state one district, make the capital or any place in the state the place or places of election. It may declare that the five men, or whatever the number may be the state may choose, who shall have the most votes shall be considered as chosen. In this case, it is easy to perceive how the people who live scattered in the island towns will bestow their votes on different men, and how few men in a city, in any order or profession, may unite and place any five men they please highest among those that may be voted for. And all this may be done constitutionally and by those silent operations which are not immediately perceived by the people in general. Of course, the natural reaction by some was that Congress would never so abuse this power. But the federal farmer was not content to rely on the good intentions of federal office holders. I know it is urged that the general legislature will be disposed to regulate elections on fair and just principles. This well may be true. Good men will generally govern well with almost any constitution. But why, in laying the foundation of the social system, need we unnecessarily have a door open to improper regulations? This is a very general and unguarded clause, and many evils may flow from that part which authorizes the Congress to regulate elections. Were it omitted, the regulations of elections would be solely in the respective states where the people are substantially represented, and where the elections ought to be regulated, otherwise to secure a representation from all parts of the community, in making the Constitution, we ought to provide for dividing each state into a proper number of districts, and for confining the electors in each district to the choice of some men who shall have a permanent interest and residence in it, and also for this essential object, that the representative elected shall have the majority of the votes of those electors who shall attend and give their votes. If only this power had been reserved to the states, who best knew of the circumstances of local elections, then fair elections would be guaranteed. Without it, congressional elections were at the whim of a possibly corrupt Congress. An even more forceful attack came from one of the most influential and compelling anti-federalist writers with the pseudonym Brutus. Brutus was an ancient Roman senator who led the resistance in the Roman Republic against the tyranny of Julius Caesar and his allies. The anti-federalist writer Brutus was likely New York judge Robert Yates. He dedicated a large portion of his fourth essay to attacking the elections clause as striking at the heart of the social compact and enabling corrupt congressmen to perpetuate their own interests and subverting the will of the people. By this clause, the right of election itself is, in a great measure, transferred from the people to their rulers. One would think that if anything was necessary to be a fundamental article of the original compact, it would be that of fixing the branches of the legislature so as to put out of its power to alter itself by modifying the election of its own members at will and pleasure. When a people once resign the privilege of a fair election, they clearly have none left worth contending for. It is clear under this article the federal legislature may institute such rules respecting elections as to lead to the choice of one description of men. The weakness of the representation tends but too certainly to confer on the rich and well-born all honors, but the power granted in this article may be so exercised as to secure it almost beyond a possibility of control. The proposed Congress may make the whole state one district and direct that the capital, the city of New York, for instance, shall be the place for holding the election. The consequence would be that none but men of the most elevated rank in society would attend, and they would as certainly choose men of their own class. Had the power of regulating elections been left under the direction of the state legislatures, where the people are not only nominally but substantially represented, it would have been secure. Congress would ensure that only the most rich and well-born would be elected to Congress. They would create such chicaneries as to ensure that elections would be skewed to the wealthy and powerful. Brutus literally despaired that if the Constitution was adopted with this provision, it was the death knell of liberty in America. The people of America will submit to a constitution that will vest in the hands of anybody a man a right to deprive them by law of the privilege of a fair election. 
they will submit to almost anything. Reasoning with them will be in vain. They must be left until they are brought to reflection by feeling oppression. They will then have to rest from their oppressors by a strong hand, that which they now possess, and which they may retain if they will exercise but a moderate share of prudence and firmness. Constitutions are not so necessary to regulate the conduct of good rulers as to restrain that of bad ones. Wise and good men will exercise power so as to promote the public happiness under any form of government. Men are apt to be deceived both with respect to their own dispositions and those of others. Though this truth is proved by almost every page of the history of nations, to wit, that power, lodged in the hands of rulers to be used at discretion, is almost always exercised to the oppression of the people and the aggrandizement of themselves. Yet most men think if it was lodged in their hands, they would not employ it in this manner. Thus, when the prophet Elisha told Hazel, I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and wilt dash their children, and rip up their women with shot. Hazel had no idea that he ever should be guilty of such horrid cruelty and said to the prophet, Is thy servant a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has showed me that thou shalt be a king of Syria. This event proved that Hazel only wanted an opportunity to perpetuate these enormities without constraint, and that he had a disposition to do them, though he himself knew it not. Brutus knew his history and his Bible. Indeed, the prophecy of Hazel is a compelling story. The king of Syria was ill and sent his high official, Hazel, to ask the prophet Elisha if he would recover. Elisha saw a vision that the king would recover from his illness but would be killed afterwards by Hazel and that Hazel would become the king of Syria and then wage a virulent war against Israel. The prophet told Hazel that the king would live then die quickly anyway and that Hazel would eventually wage a cruel war against Israel. Hazael basically reacted by saying that was impossible. At this time, Hazael was presumably a loyal servant to his king and had no plans for conquest against Israel. But soon enough, Hazael returned to Syria. He murdered the king, which Elisha had not disclosed to Hazael. He took power and then waged the prophesied cruel war against Israel. Judge Yates was using this biblical passage to reflect that often virtuous men can become corrupted and tyrannical if they were not otherwise hemmed in by law. The elections clause would be a great temptation for the Congress to pervert otherwise virtuous men into malicious actors. Another leading anti-federalist, likely New York Governor George Clinton, writing under the pen name Cato, also attacked the provision exhaustively in his seventh letter, as did anti-federalist Samuel Byron of Pennsylvania, who wrote under the pseudonym Sentinel. The anti-federalists were very persuasive. For example, those who opposed ratification at the Pennsylvania Convention issued a dissenting report which highlighted this provision as one of the major reasons for refusing to vote for ratification. Plus, several state ratifying conventions adopted resolutions proposing amendments to the Constitution, which included almost exclusively vesting the states with the authority to set the time, place, and manner of elections. For example, the Virginia Convention passed this provision, which pretty much embodied Madison's thinking. The Congress shall not alter, modify, or interfere in the times, places, or manner of holding elections for senators and representatives, or either of them, except when the legislature of any state shall neglect, refuse, or be disabled by invasion or rebellion to prescribe the same. New York, North Carolina, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maryland all passed similar proposed amendments. South Carolina, which was a leading state during the drive towards independence from the British Empire, used stronger terms in its proposed amendment. We do declare that it is the right to regulate elections to the federal legislature and to direct the manner, times, and places of holding the same is and ought to remain to all posterity a fundamental right. 
resolved that in the opinion of the convention, the general government of the United States ought not to interfere therein, but in cases where the legislature shall refuse or neglect to execute that branch of their duty to the Constitution. The Federalists, however, were not content to sit back. Instead, they countered that the anti-Federalist fears were overblown and detached from the plain text of the Constitution. For example, in the North Carolina Ratifying Convention, James Iredell defended the Elections Clause. He drafted the law that established North Carolina's court system, was a judge of the Superior Court, and elected state attorney general. He compiled and revised state laws and would be appointed to the Supreme Court by George Washington in 1790. Suffice it to say, he knew a bit about interpreting the law. He countered an anti-Federalist speech in the convention. I apprehend that the honorable gentleman is mistaken as to the extent of the operation of this clause. He supposes that the control of the general government over elections looks forward to a consolidation of the states, and that the general word time may extend to twenty or any number of years. In my humble opinion, this clause does by no means warrant such a construction. We ought to compare other parts with it. Does not the Constitution say that representatives shall be chosen every second year? The right of choosing them, therefore, reverts to the people every second year. No instrument of writing ought to be constructed absurdly when a rational construction can be put upon it. If Congress can prolong the election to any time they please, why it is said that representatives shall be chosen every second year? They must be chosen every second year, but whether in the month of March or January or any other month may be ascertained at a future time by regulations of Congress. In addition to explaining that the Anti-Federalists were simply misreading the Constitution, Iridell then defended the clause as necessary to ensure that the federal government would be able to function at all. As, for instance, if a state should be involved in a war and its legislature could not assemble, as was the case of South Carolina and occasionally some other states during the late war, it might also be useful for this reason lest a few powerful states should combine and make regulations concerning elections, which might deprive many of the electors of a fair exercise of their rights and thus injure the community and occasion great dissatisfaction and it seems natural and proper that every government should have, in itself, the means of its own preservation. A few of the great states might combine to prevent any election of representatives at all, and thus a majority might be wanting to do business. But it would not be so easy to destroy the government by the non-election of senators, because one-third only are to go out at a time, and all the states will be equally represented in the Senate. It is not probable this power would be abused, for if it should be, the state legislatures would immediately resent it, and their authority over the people will always be extremely great. These reasons induce me to think that the power is both necessary and useful. In the same convention, Delegate Archibald McLean also rose to defend the clause. McLean was an Irish immigrant, Another lawyer, he had served as the clerk of the North Carolina Supreme Court, town commissioner, and delegate in the North Carolina Provincial Congress. He also helped draft the North Carolina Constitution and Declaration of Rights, and served in the state legislature. He declined election to the Continental Congress, and some thought he was loyalist because he defended loyalists in court, and he was even attacked by a captain of the Continental Army with a sword in a courtroom, causing a small riot. Now here, he was advocating for the adoption of the Constitution and supporting the Elections Clause, challenging the idea that it could be perverted by Congress to extend their terms of office. Mr. Chairman, the revered gentleman from Guilford has made an objection which astonishes me more than anything I have heard. He seems to be acquainted with the history of England, but he ought to consider whether his historical references apply to this country. He tells us of triennial elections, that is, elections every three years, being changed to septennial elections, that is, elections every seven years. This is a historical fact, 
we well know, and on the occasion on which it happened, is equally well known. They talk as loudly of constitutional rights and privileges in England as we do here, but they have no written constitution. They have a common law, which has been altered from year to year for a very long time, Magna Carta and Bill of Rights. These they look upon as their constitution, yet this is such a constitution as it is universally considered Parliament can change. Blackstone, in his admirable commentaries, tells us that the power of the Parliament is transcendent and absolute, and can do and undo everything that is not naturally impossible. The act, therefore, to which the reverend gentleman alludes, was not unconstitutional. Has any man said that the Congress can deviate from the Constitution? The Congress is to be guided by the Constitution. They cannot travel beyond its bounds. The reverend gentleman says that though the representatives are to be elected for two years, they may pass an act prolonging their appointment for twenty years, or for natural life, without any violation of the Constitution. Is it possible for any common understanding or sense to put this Constitution upon it? Such an act, sir, would be a palpable violation of the Constitution. McLean laid out a basic difference between the American and English constitutions. In England, the Constitution was unwritten, and all it took was for Parliament to pass a law to change it. The change in terms of office, after all, happened in 1715 through the passage of a law. In the United States, the written Constitution would be supreme, and Congress could not change or violate it. Because members of the House of Representatives had two-year fixed terms by the Constitution, they could not be extended by Congress. Likewise, senators could not serve for more than six years. This was a fundamental shift in thinking about the Constitution, which McLean observed had not been understood by those attacking the Elections Clause. North Carolina Governor Samuel Johnson concurred. He likewise explained that the Constitution would govern the Congress, not the other way around. A parallel has been drawn between the British Parliament and Congress. The powers of Congress are all circumscribed, defined, and clearly laid down. So far they may go, but no farther. But, sir, what are the powers of the British Parliament? They have no written constitution in Britain. They have certain fundamental principles and legislative acts securing the liberty of the people. But these may be altered by their representatives without violating their constitution in such manner as they may think proper. Their legislature existed long before the science of government was well understood. From very early periods you find their parliament in full force. What is their Magna Carta? It is only an act of parliament. Their parliament can at any time alter the whole or any part of it. In short, it is no more binding on the people than any other act which has passed. The power of the parliament is therefore unbounded. But, sir, can Congress alter the Constitution? They have no such power. They are bound to act by the Constitution. They dare not recede from it. At the moment that the time from which they are elected expires, they may be removed. If they make bad laws, they will be removed, for they will be no longer worthy of confidence. The people of Great Britain have no Constitution to control their legislature. The king... Lords and commons can do what they please. The rule of law, a written constitution, which bound the federal legislature, was a concept that was groundbreaking. And at least several of the delegates in North Carolina clearly understood its ramifications. The Congress could not extend their elective terms because the written constitution prohibited it. Alexander Hamilton similarly took the Anti-Federalist to task in Federalist Paper 59, which was almost entirely dedicated to the Elections Clause. Hamilton's defense began by explaining that the provision was necessary for the preservation of the federal government. Parallel to Madison's argument at the Constitutional Convention, he explained that extraordinary circumstances might arise that would require Congress to invoke this authority. 
Nothing can be more evident than that an exclusive power of regulating elections for the national government in the hands of the state legislatures would leave the existence of the Union entirely at their mercy. They could at any moment annihilate it by neglecting to provide for the choice of persons to administer its affairs. It is too little purpose to say that a neglect or omission of this kind would not be likely to take place. The constitutional possibility of the thing, without an equivalent for the risk, is an unanswerable objection. Hamilton then pooh-poohed the risk that this authority would be abused, and noted that the states were just as likely to abuse this power as the federal government, and if there was to be any kind of abuse, it was best to place it in the federal government since it dealt with federal elections. No one would have stood for the federal government regulating state elections, so it was only fair that the federal government would have the final say on federal elections. In addition, Timothy Pickering specifically responded to the federal farmer's suggestion that the power would be abused. Pickering was a judge, and during the American Revolution, he served as an adjunct general and quartermaster general of the Continental Army. After the Constitution was adopted, he became Postmaster General, Secretary of War, Secretary of State, United States Senator, and member of the U.S. House of Representatives. At one point, he became a leader of the Hartford Convention, which was an ill-conceived attempt to have New England secede from the Union. But well before that ill-fated move, he wrote a letter, dated Christmas Eve of 1787, addressed to Charles Tillinghast, which undoubtedly represented the views of many Federalists favoring ratification of the Constitution. Why they tell you that Congress will have the power to regulate the elections to senators and representatives, and that possessing this power, they will exercise it to deprive the people of the freedom of election. The Federal Farmer says, quote, The general legislature may so regulate elections as to secure the choice of any particular description of men. It may make the whole state one district, make the capital or any places in the state the place or places of election, unquote, and so forth, in the same chimerical stirring. But does he, does any man of common sense, really believe that the Congress will ever be guilty of so wanton an exercise of power? Will then immediate representatives of the people in Congress ever consent to such an oppressive regulation? For whose benefit would they do it? Would not the first attempt certainly exclude themselves? And would not the state legislatures at their next election of senators as certainly reject every one who should give his assent to such a law? And if the president did not firmly give his qualified negative to it, would he ever again be placed at the chair of government? What other oppressive regulation can they make which will not immediately or in such a short time affect them in common with their fellow citizens? What then have we to fear on this head? In the end, the Federalist had the better argument and the Constitution was ratified despite this hotly contested provision. And now, Judge Warren, you want to walk us through the next section? Absolutely. The next provision of Article 1, Section 2 provides, The Congress shall assemble at least once in every year, and such meetings shall be on the first Monday in December, unless they shall by law appoint a different day. When the delegates at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia were drafting the Constitution, they came up against some practical issues, like would Congress have a minimum number of times to meet, and when they should meet. This provision requires that the Congress meet at least once a year, that being the first Monday in December, unless Congress fixes a different date. This provision engendered a bit of a debate at the Constitutional Convention. As we have discussed previously, a committee released a full first draft of the Constitution on August 6th of 1787. Article 3 of this report provided that the legislature shall meet on the first Monday in December of every year. The day after the report was released, James Madison, as he was apt to do when someone else wrote a provision of the Constitution without his guidance, inquired about the provision. I wish to know the reasons of the committee for fixing by the Constitution the time of meeting for the legislature, and suggested that it be required only that one meeting at least should be held every year, leaving the time to be fixed or varied by law. Before an answer could even be given, Virginia Delegate Governor Morris interjected, I move to strike out the sentence. 
It was improper to tie down the legislature to a particular time or even to require a meeting every year. The public business might not even require it. Not to interrupt here, Judge, but did Morris just say he didn't think there was going to be enough business for the Congress that they could just take a year off? Wow, I wonder what he would think of our Congress today. Seems like they are always busy, busy, busy with one thing or another. Okay, sorry, Judge. Back to you. No need to apologize. You heard it right, Bombastic Brent Bassett. Not even the great Governor Morris predicted today's state of affairs with the Congress. In any event, even then, Morris's motion was met with opposition. Massachusetts Delegate Nathaniel Gorham was a merchant, then a member of the Massachusetts General Court, which was its legislature, a member of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, member of the Board of War, and served in the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention. He was also a member of Congress under the Articles of Confederation and a judge. Having a bunch of experience in the legislative branch obviously informed his opposition. If the time be not fixed by the Constitution, disputes will arise in the legislature and the states will be at a loss to adjust thereto the times of their elections. In the New England states, the annual time of meeting had been long fixed by their charters and constitutions and no inconvenience had resulted. I think it necessary that there should be one meeting at least every year as a check on the executive department. Delegate Oliver Ellsworth and Delegate James Wilson concurred that a fixed date was important. Rufus King of Massachusetts disagreed. King was a lawyer who served in the militia during the American Revolution, the Massachusetts General Court, and then in the Constitutional Convention. After the Constitution was ratified, Alexander Hamilton cajoled him into moving to New York, and he became a U.S. Senator from that fine state from 1789 through 1796. George Washington appointed him as ambassador to Great Britain, and he kept the position under John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. In 1804 and 1808, he ran for vice president in losing campaigns and he even ran for president in 1816, when he lost again. There is no President King, after all. He returned to the Senate for several years. King argued, I could not think there would be a necessity for a meeting every year. A great vice in our system was that of legislating too much. The most numerous objects of legislation belong to the states. Those of the national legislature were but few. The chief of them were commerce and revenue. When these should be once settled, alteration would be rarely necessary and easily made. Now, you just heard King's resume. He was no fool. He was really hoping the Congress would have so little work that it didn't need to meet every year. Geez, Judge, those were the days. Would they have been surprised? Another surprising thing about this debate was Madison did not have a particularly strong opinion. He thought, If the time of meeting should be fixed by a law, it would be sufficiently fixed, and there would be no difficulty then, as had been suggested, on the part of the states in adjusting their elections to it. One consideration appears to me to militate strongly against fixing a time by the Constitution. It might happen that the legislature might be called together by the public exigencies and finish their session but a short time before the annual period. In this case, it would be extremely inconvenient to reassemble so quickly and without the least necessity. I think one annual meeting ought to be required but do not wish to make two unavoidable. Virginia's George Mason thought the business of the Congress would keep it busy enough to require an annual meeting. He elaborated that the Congress was not only going to legislate, but it would investigate public issues and keep close supervision on the other branches of government. I think the objections against fixing the time insuperable but that an annual meeting ought to be required as essential to the preservation of the Constitution. The extent of the country will supply business, and if it should not, the legislature 
besides legislative, is to have inquisitorial powers, which cannot safely be long kept in a state of suspension. Connecticut Delegate Roger Sherman also pointed out that annual meetings were vital in England to keep the king in check, and they would be just as important in America to protect liberty. He also observed that most states required annual meetings of the legislature and that westward expansion would also supply plenty of business for Congress to consider on an annual basis. Virginia Delegate Edmund Randolph offered an amendment. I am against fixing any day irrevocably, but as there is no provision made anywhere in the Constitution for regulating the periods of meeting, and some precise time must be fixed until the legislature shall make provision, I cannot agree to strike out the words altogether, instead of which I move to add the words following, unless a different day shall be appointed by law. This common-sense measure was adopted eight states to two. Whew, they were finally done with this provision. Not so fast, bombastic Brent Bassett. The convention was really working to provide great precision to the Constitution. The delegates were debating nearly everything. The draft originally provided that the Congress would meet in December. But that did not sit well with Virginia Delegate Governor Morris. He moved that Congress should meet in May because of two reasons. First, he thought that Congress would have more time to consider information from Europe, which did most of its planning in the winter. Remember, it took months for ships to sail the ocean blue. The information from Europe would be showing up in the late winter or early spring. Second, May would be a more convenient time for members of Congress to travel than in the winter in December. Pennsylvania's James Wilson countered that the winter is the most convenient season for government business because everything else was shut down. Ellsworth agreed that meetings of Congress should not be held when most of the members would be busy with their farms in the spring, summer, and fall. After all, most of the members were expected to be farmers, just like the rest of the country. Randolph returned to the stage and made a pretty sensible, reasonable point. The time is of no great moment now, as the legislature can vary it. On looking into the constitutions of the states, the times of their elections, with which the elections of the national representatives would no doubt be made to coincide, would suit better with December than May, and it was advisable to render our innovations as little incommodious as possible. The motion was defeated. Eight states to two. Now, they were done. Not so fast, Judge Warren. The convention was trying to be exact about as much as possible. After the provision was redrafted, South Carolina's John Rutledge moved to add back to the text once at least every year to ensure that it was absolutely clear that Congress had to convene once a year. That modification was adopted with no argument. This provision garnered no meaningful discussion in the ratifying conventions and was ignored by the Anti-Federalists. Were they done now? Oh, for crying out loud, they were done. Hurrah! Some key takeaways from this episode. The time, place, and manner of elections of the House of Representatives and the time and manner of elections of the United States Senate are determined by each state. This was done to allow those closest to the situation and most informed of the local circumstances to set the elections. However, the Congress does have the ability to pass a law to regulate such elections to ensure that the states fulfill their duties to hold such elections and to ensure the states do not abuse their power. Congress is required to meet at least once a year, and under the original Constitution, that was the first Monday of each December, but Congress has the authority to change the date. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard, Skanechny, who is our sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer, and the multi-talented, bombastic Brent Bassett. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers, and other great patriots and flags from our history along with all the fantastic resources we have to offer, including lesson plans, videos, a TV show, all kinds of goodies. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. 
Until next time, when we continue our exploration of the United States Congress and our Constitution, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then-10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.